there, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organisation dedicated to creating a flourishing world. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core capabilities that I believe and decades of research supports are essential in creating a flourishing life. So join me as I talk to experts from around the globe about the six M's, mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. They'll share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. So let's get started. Dr. Joe Mitchell is a clinical and coaching psychologist who works with people to achieve valued life goals, find meaning and live well. Joe works with professionals experiencing mental illness, burnout or significant stress. With over 25 years sport industry experience, Joe has a focus on working with high performers, particularly managing work and life transitions, mental illness and well-being. Joe is an expert in well-being science, including positive psychology, ACT and mindfulness, and she's also completed her PhD in this field. She loves technology and led the team behind MindMax, a digital resilience and well-being app with AFL players, Movember and QUT. Joe's also the director and co-founder of The Mind Room, an innovative psychological service located in Collingwood, Victoria. She's also on the board of Action for Happiness Australia. Welcome, Joe, to the show. Oh, thank you, Susie. <laughs> and you're here today to talk to us about mindset. And what a perfect combination, really, given that you are the co-founder and director of The Mind Room in uh, Collingwood in Victoria. Yes, and we've just moved into a new venue and we're totally loving it, except for these pesky lockdowns yeah. that... Uh, keep us all at home. I guess you need every, not just mindset skill, but every psychological skill that you've got <laughs> to manage. Yeah, you need a lot of acceptance, I think, yeah. is key. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to talking to you more about that. And actually, you might have some great little tips for people because we'll be releasing this soon. And uh, many people across the globe are still, as you know, in and out of lockdown. So uh, very timely. But before we do get into that, Joe. I was quite surprised to hear that you are a champion orienteer. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I did know that you and myself and Aaron Jardin were involved with the Wellbeing Adventure Race at the International Positive Psychology Congress in Melbourne. And that now gives me some insight as to why you were so good at it. Is that, <laughs> is that right? I, you know what? I started orienteering when I was about 10 years old. And the skills that I've got from that, because I've taken a bit of a, a break from it for the last decade or so, but I, I, since I moved back to Tassie, I've started again. But the capacity to know your direction, read a map and be able to navigate your way around the the world is just invaluable. So, I, yeah, I love it. Absolutely. And I'm curious then, I guess, about what might be the, your top character strengths that are coming into play there. Curiosity, self-regulation, appreciation of beauty and excellence, maybe? Yeah, I think definitely the appreciation of beauty and excellence is a big one, which is also what's drawn me back to living in Tasmania is just 
the nature and the beauty, physical beauty of the place just really makes me very happy and calm and content. How beautiful. And I myself will be down there in a few weeks and uh, looking forward to catching up hopefully when, when we're down there. Well, all I can say is rug up warm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Joe, what does mindset actually mean to you? It's a, it's a broad umbrella term, I guess, psychologically speaking, but yeah, what does it mean to you? I think, I mean, mindset's been very dominated in the psychology and education worlds by this idea of Dweck's sort of growth mindset, fixed mindset. But I see it a lot more broadly, I guess, in that I think that mindset is really the beliefs that we hold that shape how we see the world and ourselves. So it's what we've learned from childhood and growing up and our family and our peers and society. And it really influences how we feel and behave in our everyday life. You're right. It's become a very popular term in educational settings in particular and also into the corporate setting, but it's really been the bread and butter of, of psychologists and, and yourself and myself being clinical psychs. That was a very large part of, of our education and training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I really have embraced over the last decade and certainly what we try to encapsulate at the Mind Room is rather than being so fixated on the form that therapy or coaching work takes is looking at its function. And Mm -hmm. so people having that really strong understanding of how their mind works, how their thoughts, how their feelings, how their behaviours, how they operate, so that they're really in the driver's seat of how they live their life. Rather than we teach you a particular form, might be it CBT or DBT or whatever it may be, it's helping people to understand the underlying functions. So get to know your mind if you can, love it. If you can't, at least accept it and <laughs> learn how to, to work with it, to grow it and to direct it to, I guess, the things that really matter to you. So there'd still be a fair amount of psychoeducation there in that function component, would you say? Or Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what the Carol Dweck growth mindset, fixed mm. mindset work has done really well. It's given a lovely teaching framework that is digestible and understandable by, you know, really young kids through to us adults and gives us a framework for, well, what does that actually mean? So it addresses those ideas of how we respond to feedback from others or how we respond when we're faced with a hurdle or a challenge in our way. Um, So it gives practical psychoeducation and guidance for the what to do. However, that's not all I think that there is to this idea of mindset. Yeah. And I think, you know, there, as you probably know, there was some criticism, some published papers critiquing, uh, I guess, some of the research that was conducted by Dweck and others around mindset or the development, the capacity to build a growth mindset. And I know when I looked at it, I sort of thought, well, what were they actually doing? What, what were they, you know, what interventions or what were they doing mm. to help? And it was really, from what I could see, was just a very basic introduction to the brain's like a muscle and the more you use it, the more it develops it. And I thought, mm, interesting that they didn't really introduce any cognitive behavioral or act type approaches, which for me is really, that's what they've been doing all these years is helping to develop a growth mindset. But I haven't seen those sort of ideas linked together Uh, very much. Uh, Look, I think it's so 
easy to get drawn into simple models of how the mind works and Mm. how we behave in life. And like I said, I think this is really teachable and easy to teach, but it's so much more complex than that. However, the, the upside is it's planting seeds. And if it's introducing an idea to people that you are not limited by your own thoughts or thinking, um, and just because you've never been great at something doesn't mean that you can't still have a go and see how you develop in that area. Absolutely. I know learning, I mean, just the basics of CBT early in my 20s changed my life really when I realized I didn't have to be a slave to my my thinking processes. And I also recall my first job as an intern psychologist, the psychiatrist saying to me, flexibility is a sign of mental health, Susie. And I didn't fully understand what he meant then, but that's become even more popular or recognized, Joe, hasn't it? This idea of psychological flexibility. Oh, absolutely. Same for me. I mean, I trained in Adelaide and my training was very clinical, very traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And I felt like I really, like, I mean, I love that and I learned a lot from it, but there was always something that didn't quite sit right. Mm. Um, And so when I came to acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, that's when I really felt like, okay, now I'm home. Now I understand Mm. this because it just shifted that one little piece, which really said to you, this is all about your relationship with your own mind, mm. rather than it being that the content that your your mind provides, like, you know, thinking, yeah, I mean, my big one was, I can't do statistics, which stopped <laughs> me. <the> club. <laughs> <laughs> which, which stopped me from, you know, like, because of that thought, just yeah. that thought, I can't do maths, I can't do statistics, that stopped me from embarking on my psychology degree so mm-hmm. much sooner because wow. I thought, well, you know, I can't do it. So there's no point. I can do the other pieces. And instead, it was really easy to get into that place where you rail against the training or the form that it takes rather yes. than, you know, the day that I realized I can't keep going on doing the work that I was doing. I need something else. I've got a long career ahead of me. And I was brave enough to go, you know, that's just a thought. What could I do to help me through that? And so for me, it was just, you just have to work hard and get the right people around you that are going to help you to learn this. You can do it, but it's just not going to be as easy as maybe some of the other topics that you cover in your psychology training. And for me, when I came across ACT, which really teaches you this idea of just be curious about your own thoughts are they really true? Do you need to do what this thought says to you? Because there's an awful lot of thoughts that we have every day that you ignore or you can let go or you can see how silly they are, but there's some thoughts that get stuck. And for me, that's really what mindset is talking to is an understanding of the relationship that you have with your thinking, with your feelings, and then how that impacts your behavior. Yeah, I love that idea of the relationship and and also that mindfulness, I guess, which helps you to observe, doesn't it? Become mm. an observer and then create what I guess uh, ACT refers to as that, that diffusing, being able to diffuse between the thought and yourself in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. to shift that relationship, to ease it. I think, you know, for us, we've probably come full circle at the mind room where we were very averse about teaching mindfulness training 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like we had our classes and we would be a lot more introducing the concept of mindfulness, whereas now really 
it's woven through mm. everything in the physical space. There is cues to make people more mindful, but also we don't necessarily use that terminology so overtly because it's integral. Like if people cannot observe their own experience, like it's really hard to change. You're going to change by accident rather than on purpose. And really what we're trying to support people to do is to be intentional about the change that they make and the direction that they take their life. Yeah, it's an interesting, a couple of interesting uh, thoughts going through my head right now is, I guess I'm drawing some parallels to the, the field of positive education where there's this quite current discussion at the moment about, you know, whether we can continue to use the term positive education. I mean, that discussion's been going on for a while, but it seems to be after 10 years that schools like Geelong Grammar, who we're working with at the moment, don't seem as attached to it. And as you said, in making it sort of part of what they do anyway, without the need of actually separating it, which is sort of parallel to what you're talking about there, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's the maturity of both yes. the field, but also of our community and culture that now our literacy around some of these ideas is, is higher and therefore we don't have to put it out the front. We can let it slide into the back seat and be part of the whole picture without making it the lead of all that we do. Yeah, yeah I, I was really pleased to see the... Um, University of Melbourne, their uh, Centre for Positive Psychology, changing their name yes. to the Centre for <laughs> Wellbeing Science. I'm just like, uh-huh, great. Because when these big institutions, and it's not easy to make no. what seems like something really simple, like a name change. So when they're doing it, you're going, okay, we're, we're at another place now where wellbeing science rather than positive psychology to describe the field I think is is going to be a lot more helpful for the direction that we take over the next decade or so. Yes, isn't that interesting, Joe? Though, although I have a recollection of probably maybe seven or eight years ago when I was trying to redefine, create my own uh, updated definition of posed, and I recall reaching out to you and perhaps Aaron and asking your thoughts around, you know, because I could see that it wasn't just positive psych, that particularly mm. coaching, I feel like coaching psychology, which is my background, but also neuroscience. And, and so I asked for your feedback and I remember you at the time saying wellbeing science and, and, and I used that in my definition I probably should have referenced it <laughs> but you know you know you just do it you're ahead of your time Joe Mitchell ahead of your time <laughs> I think that the thinking's been there it's just amazing how much effort it takes to shift yeah. the institutions that surround us so if the work that you're doing in schools is moving more to that idea of well-being science and talking about it as an integrated yes. part of education rather than a separate entity then that's it that's fantastic and I guess there's plenty of examples of that again I don't work in the education space in particular but I imagine just even things like pedagogy being the lead idea and and a science or a thinking or theoretical science behind that being front and foremost for a very long time mm. and and then you get these other areas that come in and suddenly it's like positive psychology is leading the way or the direction and then we um, see actually they need everything needs to sit together 
And the other thought that I just had before that I've managed to hold on to so I didn't forget. Well done. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> That's why you're interviewing and I'm, I'm, I'm being interviewed. <laughs> I don't know. I still struggle. But um, we had Eric Winters, who you probably know is an associate of mine and is also an ACT practitioner, in, particularly in coaching, and he presented at our Workplace Coaching Summit. And he was talking about this move to towards rather than, as you said, specifically, I think, referring to mindfulness, just utilising the language around just noticing or noting um, within ACT. Is that what you've observed too? I love that term, Yeah, that kind of phrase of, yeah, just note, just note. Again, like mindfulness is all about noticing your experience and often what we're doing is reacting on autopilot, so just very well-learned patterns of reacting to. So, yeah, so... It's kind of a gentle curiosity, yeah. which is, it's a hard one to explain because you don't want to be so curious that it becomes, it steps into analysis okay. and meaning making and, but you just want this really gentle, soft curiosity about your own experience or even the experience of others. If, if you're looking at how you're operating in groups or, or in a, a team setting, but often, yeah, we want to jump into fix-it mode, analyse it, make mm. sense of it. So true, isn't it? What have been your greatest learnings so far on, I guess, the top, the broad topic of mindset? And I'm happy if you want to make that both professional or personal because I know uh, you're, you certainly walk the talk when it comes to this stuff too, Joe. Yeah, I think my biggest learning is that you're constantly learning. (laughs) Just when you think you've got it, that's for me anyway, just when I think, oh yeah, I get that. And something will come along to challenge my perception. And I'm so much more accepting of that now, (laughs) Joe. Yeah. And and that's the nice thing, isn't it? When the ego can get out of the way and you can go, oh yeah, all right, it's changed. So how do I want to respond to that? So I feel like I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly having to nudge my ego out of the way as well (laughs) and practice being, I guess, accepting and open, but it's hard. And I think you you get that penny drop moment of you learn an idea or a concept and it's really invigorating and exciting and it's like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. My life is going to change and then it doesn't. And yeah. so I think that that piece of being able to apply it and that it's a constant kind of polishing act of having to apply these skills. And I know the theory of mindset really well, yeah. I'm well versed in all of this, but I still in my own life and, and probably the biggest challenge that I've had of late has been around health. Right. And so being able to take all of these skills yeah, right. to navigate, you know, an unexpected health event. So, you know, I, I my problem was I was a little bit too smug about surviving 2020. So <laughs> I was kicking back in December and going, yeah, that was hard, but we got through that. Well yeah, done, right. us. That was amazing. And then bam, next thing I know, I'm in the hospital. I have mm. a cardiac arrest. Oh, I, oh my goodness. Um, have a pacemaker put in. <gasps> And yeah, the last, you know, five, six months has been all about adapting and learning and learning that I've got to separate my identity of work because I work pretty hard and I love it. I obviously get a lot of reward out of that, but I kind of have to develop a more rounded sense of me. So all the things that 
you know, I guess I was very attached to. I'm just having to soften that wow. attachment and shift those relationships and prioritize health more than maybe I have done yeah, previously. There's nothing like that sort of event to shape you up. And, you know, unfortunately, that it often, you know, it gets to that, doesn't it, before yeah. people make that recognition that things need to shift a little. And it's realizing that this is life. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, sometimes you think, oh my God, why does this great thing happen to me or this terrible thing happen to me? But they're constantly, life is changing and shifting and new experiencing. Unless you're living as a hermit away in a cave, then life happens to you and it's exciting and rewarding and challenging and hard. And for me, that's where this psychological flexibility comes in, that if you have a mindset that is so attached to a particular identity or a particular behavioural way of being, then you're going to really struggle when life does what it does best, which yeah. is change. That's right. And I guess I'm, I am curious about how explicit in terms of the usage of all of the sophisticated skills, knowledge and skills that you've got when you went through that? Because I know I often reflect on the last curveball I had. I probably didn't do it as successfully as I would have mm. hoped, Joe. And at that point, I felt grateful that I had people around me that were skilled that actually helped me with that because I found it very hard to apply some of my skills to myself. I don't yeah. know. How did you go with applying your knowledge and skills through that sort of situation? Um, I guess I had more time than I usually have. So right. that forced me to stop and reflect, but also I got help. Yeah. You know, I have my own psychologist and I, me too. <laughs> even though I was like, oh, I just don't want to. And it's really hard to get into a psychologist <laughs> these days. So yeah. like all those issues of, and you know, and I don't, I can't go see my friends who are psychologists. So, so all of that. So it's a, a hard system to navigate, but I needed an outside perspective because yeah. it's really hard to see it clearly yourself. So that has been really invaluable, but also actually being real with myself and going, you've done your apprenticeship. You have learned all these ideas. You yeah. love it. You love helping others with it. And now <laughs> here's your challenge. Now you've got to sit down and do it yourself. So I, I got back to a lot more walking in nature, also more of my own meditation and mindfulness practices, but also prioritizing connection with others because every interaction and people have been amazing and supportive and and loving and kind about what I've been through yeah but each of those conversations also helps me to to accept it and to grow and imagine what the next phase looks like for me yeah incredible joe amazing it is life will give us these experiences won't it to to put our skills into action yeah actually the biggest one that i had though susie mm -hmm. is i was in hospital for a couple of days earlier last week and i was in a four bed ward and the the great thing about being relatively young so i'm 52 just turned yeah. 52 uh, is that when you're in a cardiac ward you're usually about 20 at oh. least 20 years younger than everybody <laughs> else in the place 
very youthful in there. Oh, but... <laughs> my God. I've never been described as a young, fit female quite <laughs> as often in uh, my later years. But the one thing that really challenged me was when a very delightful gentleman who had been in there for two weeks, so he'd been in there for a while and he would have been in his 70s, but we were just chatting about things and he said to me, uh, he was telling me about his grandkids and he said, so how many grandkids do you have? (laughs) And I I was just like, oh, my God, I don't even have kids. And now people are going to start asking me about grandchildren. Oh, my God. (laughs) Exactly. I know. Well, I'm just about to actually have a second grandchild. Congratulations. But I feel way too young to be a grandparent. Yeah, it's confronting, isn't it? It's not how we see ourselves. No, it's certainly not. So, Joe, there's so much I could talk to you about. And I guess one of my story, my questions was going to be around a case study, but you've just given me a really powerful one of <laughs> applying mindset. So I'm going to move move towards what do you see for the future of, of mindset? That could be scientifically, but it could also be very in a very practical sense in our community. I just think that we're going to get a more integrated understanding of what it means. I mean, one of the things I struggle with, so my life before I was a psychologist was in marketing and media. And so I see the way that we love to turn psychological concepts into commodity. Mm. And I think, you know, we end up losing the essence and the understanding and the nuances of ideas like mindfulness and growth mindset and a lot of uh, like the word neuroscience. Oh my God, it's been (laughs) overused and commodified. So these sorts of ideas that are out there and they are lovely and easy to grasp, but they're simplified and they're not put into context. And so I think that the future is really, and this is hard, this is a massive challenge, is how do we get more integrated understanding of the complexity of psychology and also these psychological ideas and how they fit into the real world and how we can talk about them in a way that weaves it together better for people. We also had the wonderful uh, Professor Michael Kavanagh presented at Workplace Coaching Summit on resilience. And he, uh, I guess, presented his thinking, his current thinking around resilience being, I guess, well, he comes from a systems perspective around it being an emergent property of the system and the individual, I guess, but talking about it being a relationship between the individual and the environment and access to resources, you know, both not just internal but external resources. And, you know, that's been one of the concerns as much as I believe that we should be teaching, particularly kids, some of these basic psychological skills and developing a wellbeing literacy, we can't underestimate the power of the context or the environment, or can we? Because we don't want individuals to feel like it's all their responsibility in terms of whether they cope or don't cope within a certain context. Actually, that's probably my biggest learning in life is the interconnectedness of all things. Yeah. Um, our relationship to ourselves, but also to others and to nature and to the worlds that we we live in. And, and I think that psychology to a large degree suffers from being a science of the individual or the average. Yes. And, and I think both are problematic when you try to interpret them. But, yes, yeah, certainly, and, and I know you do a lot of work in the corporate and the, the workplace settings that we try to put too much, I think, back onto individual employees mm. as either being the solution or the problem when, in fact, 
we operate within a system and it's about how we maximise the potential of this system to help us all thrive. That's it. And hopefully that's my hope for the future is there's that greater recognition of what's being referred to as the shared responsibility and particularly the, the you know significant impact that an organisational um, setting can have on, on individual wellbeing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think I'm so excited by the the new venue that we've created for the Mind Room in Collingwood is because everything about, like it's a purpose-built fit-out, but everything about it is recognising that connection between people and between culture. And so we really try to bring that out like in terms of integrating nature, but also art and therapy and connection between people, like not just make it a a cold, clinical, medicalised setting. It needs to be a warm, vibrant, living community that really supports people to wellness. So if anyone is in Melbourne and wants to come check out our place, we love to have people come see it. We've got a, a beautiful gallery exhibition up at the moment, which is a collaboration with the DAC Centre. Wow. So come in, see the art, check out the place. But I hope that that's the kind of future that we have is a really culturally rich and inviting communities that are all about helping us collectively to build our well-being. I can't wait to get down and see it, Joe. I love the uh, the original uh, mind <laughs> room, but I can't wait to see the new one. And uh, as soon as I can get down to, to Melbourne, I'll be there to celebrate with you over a glass of bubbles, hopefully. Excellent. That sounds <laughs> perfect to me. So finally, if there are a book or a podcast or a website that you'd recommend for anyone wanting to learn more, besides clearly the mind room, we'll send them to. Anything else that you'd recommend? I have a current academic crush, Susie, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he's got a wonderful podcast series that is a great starting place. I I really recommend to people to start at the beginning and work your way through, even though I I didn't. I jumped around and then I found, no, no, there's so much richness in this. I need Ah. to go back to the beginning and work my way through. But it's um, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Huberman. Right. How do you spell his name? Huberman, H-U-B-B-E-R-M-A-N. He's a neurobiologist and ophthalmologist, I believe, but he really just integrates beautifully for me the neurobiology, so body, mind, and behaviour. And he's he just summarises the research. You know, when you find these golden people yeah. that are so good, like they can absorb information at such an incredible rate and capacity and yeah. then distill it down yeah, and bring it to life. Yeah. So, yeah, Andrew Huberman, it's called the Huberman Lab Podcast. Um, highly recommend it. Oh, great. I'm always on the lookout for a new particularly site-focused podcast. So, oh, thanks, Joe. That I'll certainly check that out. And thank you so much for sharing all your incredible wisdom and knowledge and uh, experience and uh, and also, you know, being one of the first people in, in Australia to, to do a PhD in positive psych. And, you know, we've been on this journey for a while, Joe. It's wonderful to see it evolving, isn't it, over time? It sure is. I'm very grateful that I took my growth mindset and jumped on a plane to <laughs> hunt you down and have a cup of coffee early on in my um, PhD experience. 
So thank you, Susie, for inviting me to be on and have a chat with you. It's been lovely to have you as a peer colleague and friend, Joe. and uh, look forward to, as I said, catching up in Tassie soon. Oh yeah, I'll see you down <laughs> here. Bring your warm clothes. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. And if you'd like to learn more, head to our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au to purchase a copy of my first book for the public, The Positivity Prescription. You can also sign up for our e-news where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode. And remember, life's too short to languish.